She can't hear you. She can. No, not well. You know, her sense, her hearing is not what it once was. She woke up when I clapped. Yeah, she she gets those claps and bangs and things. She gets. <laughs> you know, she's Darcy. terrified of thunder. She wasn't initially when we first got her, but I think she learned it from other dogs to be mm. terrified of of thunder and lightning. Maybe. And I don't. I think I'm trying to remember if she was also scared of the lightning or if it's just the thunder. But but as she's lost her hearing, because she's she's an older dog now, Joe. But you know. You know, probably halfway through her life. What, mm. um, she's like 12. Yeah. We, we don't know exactly because, you know, she was stray when we got her. But um, I, she now that she can't hear as well, we make it most of the way through the thunderstorm before she gets terrified. Oh, nice. Sometimes so that, That's a silver th- lining. Sometimes all the way through. Yeah. Are we recording right now? Yeah. This is the show. Cool. So we're just recording a little bit. At the beginning here. Just doing this some pre-roll. Uh, pre-roll. Just to, some post-after, pre-roll, pre-post. Because we're not going to be back for a little while. I mean, we're going to be on a little bit of a hiatus for at least a couple of weeks. Yep. I'm not sure when this one's going to drop. I might try to space life. it out just a little bit. For life reasons. Yeah, you can be, be, various people are going to be traveling and various things happening. And um, so we are, our pathetic pace of episodes this year can, continues. Yes. Although, once we get back in town... I think we're going to be dropping them probably every other day. Um, yeah. Which will still make us only half as active as Brian Fry. <laughs> who, now, who now not only has Ipsy Dixit is reaching new heights of excellence because it now has guest hosts. Yeah. That's something we never considered. A topic on which you thwarted me repeatedly. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you did. But, but that was, you were suggesting that I do the show with others. Yes. Brian's genius, who I met at a conference, by the way, finally. Nice. So, hi, Brian. Hello. Um, and it was delightful. Hello, and, but, but his genius is, like, get completely different people to do it. Yeah. Whereas you were saying, hey, well, and my sense was it wouldn't be oral argument if it was me talking to somebody else. Well, look, uh, you know, it is true that uh, in this way, as in so many other ways, uh, Brian dreamed a bigger dream than mm. I did. Uh, so I was suggesting only that I be substituted um, hey, fine. Get two other people. We would have a lot more episodes if 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 either of us was available. We recorded an episode rather than requiring both of us to be available. Yes, that that is true. Probability being what it is. Uh, this is episode one hundred and ninety-eight. Wow! Of the oral argument podcast. Wow, we're asymptotically approaching episode two hundred. That, that is true. It is. It is asymptotic. <laughs> I think we'll get there, but you know, one you never, never one know. Never, one, one never knows. Uh, but we are going to be off for a couple of weeks, so I just thought I'd say that at the beginning. Um, so, you know, savor this one. And it's a good one to savor because we got the excellent Michelle Meyer back after yes. four years. She was an early Argonaut. She mm. was an Argonaut before there were Argonauts. Yeah, and continues and joins us today. So we're going to talk about A-B testing. And, of course, I already made the joke at the end that we're going to ship two different versions of this podcast. But and I'm, we're going to measure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't need to do that again. No. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. That's oral argument podcast at gmail.com. We got a couple of nice notes which came in since the last time, at oh. least maybe maybe more than a couple. Um, and uh, so thank you for that. We will probably do a mailbag episode somewhere in the summer. So let's 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 fill it up. Let's make it so hefty that we have to do two episodes in one week wow. to clear out the mailbag. At oral argument on Twitter. That's true. Just, and you know, I don't that's know, what a else? random thing to say. What else moral is, argument. Yeah, what else is there to say? I feel like we should talk a little bit more. Now? Yeah. What do you want to talk about, Joe? Uh, whatever you want. Mm, I'm kind of hungry. 
Okay. All right. Let's 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 just get to Michelle. Okay. Okay. So I want to prove to everyone that I listened to our prior episode with today's guest. Boom! The show's starting by introducing her as Melissa Moyer, <laughs> which is the fake name I came up with last time uh, because we were debating my sort of my name gaffes yeah. and whether or not I would we we could land it and et cetera, et cetera. So, so the the joke was that Michelle has such an easy to pronounce name that you would have to go to great lengths to screw it up. Yeah, the Mayor versus Meyer, and then I think. I, either I came up with Moyer or she came up with Moyer. Anyway, it's Melissa Moyer oh. or Melissa Moyers. <laughs> Can we just say the name right? We got to do that. Yeah. This is, we do but very, now I don't remember it. So We do very few things right on the show. <laughs> One of them is it, at some point we do say the name of the guest and also we get good guests on the show. I think, I think I've listed all of the, I, th- I think I've listed both of the things that we do well on the show. Sure. Um, After that, it might get, be subject to more debate. Yeah, it gets but, to be debatable. Yeah, Michelle Meyer, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we last talked to you four years ago, and it is interesting that uh, the subject of the paper today, in many ways, is is sort of a a continuation of and a deepening and uh, of many of those issues. So let me just say, can I just say the title of the paper for everybody? Well, Why I don't say, I do that? First of all, Michelle was an early fan of the show. She is. I forgot how we got connected early on. I think it was some, maybe some Twitter back and forth. I'm not sure. Like some early commentary. In episode 72, you, you referenced knowing Michelle from Twitter repeatedly. So oh, did I repeatedly that say that? that. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that again. Yeah. So stick with that. Because this was four years ago. A lot has changed over four years. One of the things that's changed listening to episode 72 is I am not nearly as sharp as I was four years ago. Oh, you were impressed with yourself in the I recording. Was, I had some sharpness. I don't, I feel like I've become a very dull blade indeed. I may be, I may now be made out of basically a little pile of dirt Ooh. rather than a, 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 a sharply honed steel blade. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, But the title of the paper today uh, is Objecting to Experiments that Compare Two Unobjectionable Policies or Treatments. Now, this is uh, in a recent issue, uh, or is forthcoming in a recent issue, of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which I say simply because the acronym PNAS is... (laughs) I've never said that out loud. Is... You know, I, I just realized that. Or is something you need to pronounce with care. I think the P is silent. It's just NAS. It's just NAS. I think so. Yeah. I don't know. It, Michelle. Well, it would it, be great if it, if, it, if it ended with T, so then it could be NAS T, but it doesn't end with T. <laughs> <laughs> is there a canonical pronunciation here, Michelle? Yes, it is P-N-A-S, perhaps for reasons you have just alluded to. It mm. is P-N-A-S. Uh. Um, sometimes PPNAS, mm. which is the prestigious proceedings of the National Academies of Science. Sometimes PNAS papers that nature already saw. Sometimes <laughs> PNAS uh, papers not accepted at science. So take take your choice, take your pick. But PNAS is canonical. And you have many uh, co-authors, but you are the lead author, and. The notes at the end of the paper suggest that you really played a role throughout the uh, production of the of the research in the paper. Is it? Do I have that r- sense of that correct? Yeah. Um, so the origins of the project, uh, and we we hope that this is paper one of a longer, broader project. Um, 
So the origins of the project really did come out of the Facebook mood contagion experiment and the OkCupid matching algorithm experiment, which is what we were chatting about just about four years ago. Yeah. Although um, I don't think we talked about OkCupid in that show at all. I'd be interested to hear about that. I don't recall that, but but it grew out of that. But yeah, so it, it came out of that, but but also, um, so you know, I had written a law review article um, called The AB Illusion, something, two cheers for corporate experimentation, the AB Illusion and the virtues of data-driven innovation or something like that um, around those two experiments. And really I had, what it was was an observation that it seemed like people object to AB tests um, what are sometimes called field experiments, sometimes called randomized controlled trials, uh, but sometimes called A-B tests, and that's pithier, so A-B tests. Sometimes people seem to object to A-B tests, even when it seemed like it would be very unlikely that they would have objected to giving everybody treatment A or, get, or giving everyone treatment B. But it was an observation based on anecdata, you know, um, uh, sort of you know, analysis of, of quotes about those experiments and others in media or scholarly articles and so forth. And so I should say, you know, it wasn't just those two social media sets of experiments. It was also several experiments um, that, that really uh, stirred up a lot of controversy in the medical healthcare community. Um, one was called the support trial, which involved randomizing very premature infants to two different um, versions of oxygen saturation within the then standard of care to figure out which one was comparatively better. Another, it was a pair of pragmatic uh, RCTs of the the schedule, the hours. This is a randomized controlled trial, right? Yeah. Um, the, the schedules that medical residents or surgical residents are permitted to work by policy before taking a break. Um, these raised a lot of, of ethical concerns with people taking sides back and forth. Um, and those are all very complicated studies, um, as was the Facebook mood contagion experiment. But it seemed to me that at its core, at least part of what was driving sort of outrage and concerns about these A-B tests was, um, or, or not so much what was driving it, but rather there seemed to be a likely inconsistency between opposition to that and likely approval of just giving everybody A and giving everybody B. So I thought, you know, if it's okay to give everybody A and it's okay to get ever, give everyone B and there's no reason to prefer A to B ex ante um, and temporary inequality isn't a problem, um, sometimes it is, but if that's not a problem, and if A versus B isn't sort of a sensitive preference, um, a preference sensitive decision, then what's the problem with temporarily randomizing people to A and B to figure out which one is best and then using that information to make that the superior policy going forward? Can I interrupt you for a second just to give, uh, I just want the listeners just to have like a, a good example in mind, like, con- you know, something concrete before we go in, you yeah. know, so things start to like to have some intuitions and then we can kind of test those. Yeah. And, and so one, one thing that would help me, is like the, the Facebook thing. My memory of that is Facebook said, how about we, you know, we show people things that we think will make them sad. And they did that for a while. Uh, at the same time, they showed other people other things, and then they tried to measure how happy or sad they were. Now that's not right. But this is like this is all that lurks in the back of my skull about this. So does either or both of you want to like remind me of what that Facebook A B test was? 
Well, what, what they did was, uh, so I'll, I'll try to answer your questions about Facebook and then maybe we can just, I can just briefly tee up the Pearson experiment because that's a lot cleaner and people yeah. hate Pearson a lot less than they hate Facebook. <laughs> so it's less confounded by, by people's emotions about, about the company. Yeah. Um, but the Facebook mood contagion experiment, uh, the first thing you have to know is the way that the news feed algorithm works. So it is a filtered algorithm you are eligible to see, I don't know, 10 times the number of posts from your friends that you are actually shown in your feed. And it's a proprietary algorithm based on who knows what a zillion different factors that prioritizes what you're going to see at the top of your feed. What Facebook did for a week in 2012 was distill varying amounts of posts, of negative posts or positive posts, depending on what condition you were in. And the point of that was to try to figure out whether the hypothesis that seeing sad posts is harmful for us because of a mood contagion theory, just like, you know, Christakis and Fowler have, have suggested that um, divorce is contagious, that obesity is contagious through social networks. The idea here was that perhaps um, without even being face to face, so online media can have the same contagion effect where mood can be contagious, in which case all of the negative um, toxic posts on Facebook are potentially psychologically harmful. Seems, seems like a reasonable hypothesis, you know, in everyday life, you know, what we what our friends do may become normative, you know, kind of what you live becomes a, a kind of it kind of wedges open possibilities either. Hey, here's something I hadn't thought of before that some other people seem to be doing. So maybe it's OK. And then with moods. But then, you know, this I have is, re- read studies about like suicide because people were worried, hey, maybe there's some suicide contagion. But then the most recent things I've seen about that is may- maybe that's not really a thing. Um, but there's also a contrary hypothesis, if I'm recalling in the literature before that about, uh, you know, seeing people's happy things actually might make you sad because you view them as being you it know, puts your own misery in, in, in yeah. starker relief. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, the, you know, you've got sort of, if we show people more happy stuff, they'll get sadder. If we show people more sad stuff, they'll get sadder. Yeah. So those are sort of point in the other direction. Now, they, they, Michelle, this isn't really just the AB stuff. I just thought we'd kind of, you know, take a little detour to kind of, you know, pump some intuitions a little bit. Well, that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly right. There were these competing academic hypotheses that hadn't really been tested through large-scale, adequately-powered, rigorous evaluations, randomized evaluations, in part because academics can't do that because Facebook owns the means of of randomization, right? Um, And so what Facebook did for a week was try to just tease that apart and figure out which of those two hypotheses or both or neither were correct at at a 10,000-foot level. And my view of it is that the dosage that any participant in that experiment saw of either happy or sad um, posts was within the standard of care of what you might experience in any, say, one month on Facebook. Because there are always going to be times where there's a lot of positive stuff on Facebook. You know, you're in Chicago and the Bears win the Super Bowl. Or you're in Boston and the Boston bombing happens and there's a lot of sadness on Facebook, right? So everyone is exposed, I mean, those are extreme events, um, but everyone is exposed to a range of happy and sad posts already. And so arguably, you know, and no one, it's not quite true to say no one complained about that. Um, Indeed, there were people who were concerned about both negative stuff on Facebook and positive stuff, but no one said really, you know, Facebook is evil for, um, 
for allowing us to see sad things that our friends say or happy things that our friends say, um, but trying to rigorously evaluate which of those two things was more, if at all, uh, harmful, people really went, really went nuts. So it's not a clean case for, for what I've called the AV illusion or the AV effect, um, but it was one of several experiments that did spur this because it seemed to me that if you're upset about being exposed to sad content or if you're upset about being exposed to happy content, then you're, you know, what you should be attacking, what you should be focusing on is Facebook's underlying practice. You shouldn't be focusing on their attempt to learn the effects of that practice. We want, in general, we want all sorts of agents who have the power to unilaterally impose things on us, policies, practices, treatments, whatever. We want them to know the effects of those things. We don't want them to, to do those things in ignorance. The Facebook case is kind of hard for that, though, um, uh, because it's not, huh. I mean, there are some things we'd like them to be ignorant of, right? I mean, we'd like them, we might like them to be ignorant of the effects of the, the algorithm to some extent. Um, um, yeah, we, we, yes, but we don't want them to be ignorant about whether their product, which is a complete innovation in 2006, causes psychological harm or not. I mean, this is not, so the argument is not that all AB tests are good. Um, that's clearly not the case. And especially for for-profit companies, you can use AB tests to optimize you know, profit gain to, you know, convert product sales to do all sorts of things that are either, you know, neutral with respect to the user's interest or, or contrary to the user's interests. So that's not sort of what we're talking about. Right. What we're talking about in this paper in this broad project is when the AB test serves the, the interests or the underlying relationship, whether it's a doctor patient relationship and the goal is to reduce iatrogenic harm in the hospital, to reduce catheter infections in the ICU. That's, that's a good thing. And we want to know if you, if you, if you implement a policy that's aimed at reducing infections, we want doctors and hospital directors to know whether that policy works or not. I mean, it's that I think we can agree on. Yeah. Yeah. So let's use that as, can we use that as, as a, as a hypo? So we, we would say, we know we want to reduce um, the incidence of infections and, and maybe the hospital thinks, well, you know, there's this checklist of things that if people do, they'll make infections less likely. So we could imagine presenting that. I think I'm recalling the details of one of your studies correctly. So, so we could present that either as um, a checklist on the back of a card that they have with them, or we could put it on a poster on the wall. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. And the, the content of the checklist reminders is sort of CDC approved best standards, like wash your hands before putting a catheter in. Don't leave the catheter in longer than it needs to be. Kind of common sense stuff. So one one way you could ask, you could if you're if you're asking subjects whether they think this is like, and I can't remember the precise um, scale that that you used, but it, you could, you could assign subjects to read a vignette where what happens is it's put on the card. You could have another vignette where it's put on the poster, but then you could have a vignette where there's a, an AB study where half the people get the card and half the people are, are, you have rooms with the poster and you're asking people to react to the degree to which they find this, uh, uh, something they approve of or not, right? 
That's right. It was a within, sorry, between subjects study. So we randomized our participants to see one of those three conditions. And in all cases, and we did sort of 16 different experiments, in all cases, we had an agent who had a benevolent motive, was trying to solve a specific problem, um, a problem not to generate profit for them, but to solve the problem for a user, a consumer, a patient, whoever. And they either thought of a new idea, they thought of a new idea and innovation, and they just implemented it for everyone, or they thought of a different innovation and implemented it for everyone, or they thought of two things and decided to A-B test them to figure out which one works better and then make that the policy going forward. And it seems, I mean, in a way, it's sort of... um... It's not too hard to imagine actual actual instances of this sort of thing. So if there were, like, let's say there were a new study that that just appeared in in the you know in the in Journal of American Medicine or some other journal where people hospital administrators are suddenly reading about this great new wow you know if you if you just suggest this checklist to people it really does help reduce the number of infections. You can imagine three different hospital systems coming up with these three different ideas, right? Look, let's just put it on the card and it'll be great. Let's just put it on a poster and it'll be great. Or, you know what? We should figure out which would work better, the poster or the card. Like, this is, seems totally p- practical and realistic to me. Maybe I'm idiosyncratic in that way, but it just seems like this, I can imagine scenarios like this happening all the time. It, well, I, as someone who now works in a health system, um, it very much is realistic. This kind of thing does happen all the time. Yes. With different, with like different decision makers taking different approaches to implementing or not, or or the way they figure out how to implement a policy that that people have reason to think is good, although it's not the only way you could do it. You could do it in some alternative way. So, how do people react to these A B compare? I should say your your study this this study which people should read. It's six pages. Like it's this this um, article of yours. It's very yeah, it's easy to long. read. People. I said, this is no law review article, people. This is six, six <laughs> pages. <laughs> That's right. And it's, so it's easy to read. It's very uh, elegantly presented and people should read it. Um, but uh, it's funny. There's a lot of, I, I've seen this has gotten a bit of coverage and a bit of pickup. And it's funny because people keep describing it as like important and sad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like the, like your results are important and and uh, depressing or or sad or dispiriting or whatever. Huh. So why do why do are people so? sad? Hmm? Do you think so? Do I think it's sad? Yeah. yeah. So so what? So first of all, we should say what the results are. Yes. And um and and if listener at home, you can pause now and ask yourself it, in these studies, and they ask people, you know, what what do you think of this? Is this does this seem fair? How, 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 what was the question actually that you asked before we say what the results were? Yeah, the dependent variable in, in all of the experiments was how appropriate do you think the agent's action or decision was? And we just give them a, a five point Likert scale with okay. a neutral point from very inappropriate to very appropriate. So, the, so the adjective is appropriate and not fair. Yes. It, did, did you did you guys do a lot of thinking about that adjective? Oh boy. Thinking and talking (laughs) some more. Yes, we did. Um, We did. And we wanted to deliberately um, be neutral about it. And and what we did was we didn't just have that quantitative measure. We asked them for a free response. We said, tell us in a couple of sentences why you you rated the decision as you did. And we developed a code book and coded all of their responses. Um, And so some of their responses sound in ethics and some of them 
sound in, you know, not ethics. Okay, so here's where the listeners can hit pause and, and make their own predictions about yeah. how people responded. And, and uh, so go ahead, hit pause. Okay, okay, we're back. <laughs> now they can't hear you to, say, to unhit pause, dude. Oh, that's true. Because they, they hit pause. That's Gosh, true. They never, they never started it again. Oh, oh, well, no one's going to listen to the second part of the podcast. Frustrating. But, uh, <laughs> Michelle, so what, what are the results? Um, basically, across 16 experiments, which we all but the first we pre-registered with lots of replications and three different samples, including a sample of clinicians um, in nine different domains from healthcare to autonomous vehicle design to um, genetic direct-to-consumer genetic testing and global poverty reduction. We find that people say that it's more appropriate to implement policy A, untested for everybody, or implement policy B, untested for everybody, than it is to run an A-B test, figure out which is better, A or B, and then give or offer everyone that. So do I have these magnitudes about right? I, I don't have the graphs right in front of me, but my memory is that you, that it was around like 10% of the people said just implementing A was inappropriate. 10% of the people, B is inappropriate. So A is like, uh, uh, the policy is going to be, we're going to have the steps to do this like catheter procedure on the back of the ID card, ID badge for the doc. And the other is, the uh, uh, policy B is in every room that where this procedure is performed, we're going to have the steps or the or, or the, or the uh, you know best practices on a poster on the wall. And then um, C, the, the C option is we're going to do a randomized controlled study where, um, you know, where... Uh, you know, half the people get one, half the people get the other. And so around 10% of the people said, hey, I've got a problem with just implementing policy A. 10% said I got a problem with implementing policy B. And it was like 30% who said, I've got a problem with doing the, um, with doing the randomized thing. Uh, in most cases, it was about 45% for that. It depends on the sample and it depends on the, the vignette. So you're talking about checklist, which was one of our larger effects. It was a Cohen's D of, I don't know, 0.8 to 1% which yeah. for social science is, is large, although you're not, you're not supposed to describe Cohen's D's as large or medium or whatever, but it but, is. But it also depended a little bit on whether you used mechanical Turk or this other polling thing. I mean, you did see some differences among the, it's depending only, on the mechanism. It's yeah. only Polefish where Polefish, we have, that was it. Yeah. Polefish is like a mobile app thing, which we tried once and we'll never try again. I mean, we had a huge order effect. So we, we randomized, of course, the order in which people saw things and whatever order they saw things, that was sort of that had a greater effect um, on their answer than anything else. So that was a dud, but um, I mean, not a dud, but the effect sizes were smaller. Despite that, we still found, you know, an effect. Now, as as an aside, did you um, a- after you were done, did you tell people what you had done, and then ask them whether they thought it was appropriate that you'd done this? <laughs> whether we thought it was appropriate that we had randomized yes, them? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Survey now. Right. Okay. So the effect sizes seemed big to me as a reader. Did I was I getting the right impression there? Um, I mean, effect sizes, like I said, a Cohen's D of sort of 0.6 to to one is is medium to large for a social science a behavioral effect. But I mean, what's really important is to ask in the real world: Would this matter? That's really the kind of effect size that that one should be concerned about. And so, if you think about you know, if we implement something, if we implement badge or poster, like a rough, uh, you know, an average of like 10, 10% of people might find that inappropriate. But if we did this AB test, like 45% would find it inappropriate. So it's not a majority of people, but that's a pretty significant fraction. 
Um, and so it seems plausible to think that that could drive behavior. And again, we know anecdotally um, from having talking talked to a lot of people that this kind of concern does drive behavior. So were there, were there any interventions where like basically nobody thought the separate intervention was inappropriate? Or instead, were there for every intervention uh, across all these different domains, and you guys tested lots of different areas, which I think is a, very much a strength of the of the paper, um, the study, um, that that basically no matter the intervention, there's always a chunk of folks who are like, no, that's inappropriate. Ah, you see, you're asking in the sort of what we call the policy conditions. Yeah. Were there were there anything where like a hundred percent of people thought it was cool? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the answer to that is no, there's always somebody, right? There's always, <laughs> but, but it's, but it's, uh, down around that kind of like 10 percent ish. So, to, so there's lots of folks who think it seems perfectly appropriate. Yeah. Um, yeah, yes. I mean, even in some of the other vignettes, it's lower, you know, the pol- the average policy inappropriateness rating is like, you know, 8% or 6% or something. So there's always somebody. So you do notice that there is a, there is a chunk, um, not a majority, but there's a chunk of people out there who have basically a problem with randomized experiments, in, even in a case where, uh, where where no one has any idea which of the two options is better, right? I mean that's the key fact here, right? That, that this is an basically this is an um, you know we we're in a state of defective epistemology and we're trying to figure it out and this is the best way we have of producing new knowledge so everyone agrees with that i mean you know that's that's true and, but and where options we, where the other data where the other people's responses suggest these are options that people generally react to as favorably right as right seem appropriate right so so it's the act of of kind of giving you know giving some things to some people and other things to other people in order to determine which one is better in a condition in which you don't know in advance which one is better and you you have no idea um, uh, and, and so there is a chunk of people out there for whom that's a problem. And maybe this is a policy problem, even if it's a minority of people. And it does seem to be a minority of people in each of these studies who, who has this problem with experimentation. It's a problem because, you know, in, in a case like Facebook, although you can imagine maybe a case where it's less justified than the outrage against Facebook, but, in, but in a case where there's experimentation, that minority might be kind of loud. And, and so a, um, um, a group, whether it's a government or, or a business or whomever who wants to uh, kind of minimize public controversy may shy away from kind of what might be the, like an epistemic best practice of experimentation for fear that it's going to raise the hackles of this maybe minority but loud group. Is that, is that one of the policy implications of the, of the paper in your view? Yes, um, absolutely. So, I mean, one policy implication is that decision makers themselves seem to be just as affected um, by the AB effect as laypersons. So we looked across all of our samples at educational attainment. We looked at whether people had a STEM degree or not, and we gave them some NSF uh, produced science literacy questions and scores on that educational attainment and STEM degrees, or lack thereof, did not predict um, our results at all. And then our final study, in our final study, we replicated the checklist experiment as well as uh, another experiment, Best Drug, which is, I hope we get to talk about briefly, is that's even, to my mind, is a lot more interesting than checklist. Both of those replicated with equally large uh, effect sizes among clinicians. I actually found that quite surprising. Like, I got to that 
passage in the paper, and I was like, wow, I did not really see that coming. Well, I so I want to get to what I think is, you know, that there's an aspect of, of who we are as a result of natural selection, which is at war with doing things in this way. And that's maybe what's producing this effect. Hmm. But you actually study, I mean, you, let's get first to what people reported. And of course, what they report is the reasons for finding something inappropriate may not be, you know, what's actually driving them to do it. They may have an initial kind of non-cognitive ugh, kind of response. And then you ask them and they say, well, why, why do I find that yucky? And Post they, hoc. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so, so tell us, when, can you summarize, like, what are the, why do people find experimentation icky? Well, I mean, so, you know, we hypothesized and found in the checklist experiments, when we looked at people's responses, that there would be an aversion to experimentation in the sense of um, having having things imposed on us without knowing what the effects are, um, and an aversion, an aversion to rand or specifically to random experimentation, right? Where we're randomly assigned to one of two things without our control and, and to inequality. Um, people are being treated differently and potentially therefore also unequally. And we saw some percentage of participants give that explanation, um, not enough to sort of dominate the reasons. It was really a smattering of, of reasons. But nevertheless, we wanted to try to kind of hone in on that. And so for the, the walk-in clinic experiment, what we did is we asked all participants to imagine a walk-in clinic where patients see whatever doctor happens to be on call at the time. And that in this walk-in clinic, some doctors, um, there, are, there are multiple FDA-approved hypertension blood pressure drugs, and some doctors give all of their patients drug A, and some doctors give all of their patients drug B. And again, you're going to get a drug A doctor or a drug B doctor, depending on who's on call and what time of day you walk through the door. By the way, this is also the same with the emergency department. Um, and this, this is meant to sort of reflect unwarranted variation in medical practice. Um, and also the fact that when an, FD, when an FDA approves a drug, they don't require comparative effectiveness data, right? So we have multiple drugs that are competing, that are on the market, that meet thresholds for safety and efficacy, um, but we don't really know how they compare to each other unless we do this sort of comparative effectiveness research. And so the, the important part of this experiment, um, in, in the A condition, Dr. Jones decides to join team A, and he gives all of his patients drug A. And we literally described it as drug A and drug B. You can come up with reasons why a poster is better than you know, a badge to display checklist reminders. You really can't generate rationally, generate any reason why drug A should be better than drug B when we haven't given you any information to distinguish them, right? And from a medical practice perspective, they've, since they've both been approved and they're both like within, so this quote, standard of care, right? These drugs are perfectly good drugs for this problem. Yeah. So, yes. so anyone right. who does that is being a good, a quote, good doctor or a good clinician by using either of these drugs. And in all conditions, you are being, quote unquote, randomly assigned to drug A or drug B. It's just that in the policy conditions, in the A condition and the B condition, you're being randomly assigned by chance, by the time of day you walk in the door, plus the idiosyncrasies of what the doctor you happen to get, like he was trained by Dr. So-and-so who happened to prefer drug A for no rational reason whatsoever, because he was trained by Dr. So-and-so, because he went to medical school such and such, because you know, he went to this conference or read that journal. Um, it's just unwarranted variation in medical practice, which is a known thing. 
And so you are randomly assigned no matter what. And um, it's an experiment. It's just an uncontrolled experiment in the policy conditions from which we can't learn anything. Um, and people are necessarily being treated differently. Some are going to get A and some are going to get B. They're not going to get to choose between A and B. And if you hypothesize that A or B, one of them is better than the other, they may not be. But if one of them is better than the other, then you're also being treated not only differently, but unequally in all three conditions. And yet we still see this very large effect size where people dramatically approve less of the AB test to figure out which of these is better. And then, by the way, to offer the same patients the opportunity, not force them. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your blood pressure drug, you can keep your blood pressure drug. We are very careful to say, offer them what is then known to be the superior drug. Um, so here you have a repeat, a repeat player scenario where the very people who would be part of the AB test would also directly benefit from it. And we still see this huge effect. So this was a way, in, in a way of controlling for some amount of concerns over randomization and inequality um, and beliefs, whether justified or not, that really the A and B aren't in equipoise. Um, and so, and when you do that, so we do, of course, get very few people saying, well, you know, people are being treated unequally or whatever in that condition, but you still get them finding some reason to, to object. Now, is it, is it the case that in all of these studies that you did, the, the people who read about the vignette where there was A, B uh, assignment procedure, in none of them did you talk about the question of consent? Correct. One way or the other. It was silent, silent. utterly silent on that. Utterly silent, although you could, you would certainly be well within your rights to infer as many of our participants did, that Dr. Jones and whoever else we talked about was not planning on getting consent. In any of the conditions, either the... Yes, pointedly in any of the conditions. And that is what... So my own view is I think there's a logical, you know, it seems to me that there is a logical inconsistency between approving of everyone gets A, but for, you know, in, 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 in the walk-in clinic thing of approving of policy A and policy B, but disapproving of an AB test. But you can resolve that inconsistency in one of two ways if your concern is consent. So one way of resolving it is to say, yeah, I think it's fine for Dr. Jones to join team A and I, I get what I get. That's what happens in a walk-in clinic, whatever. And therefore, to be consistent, Dr. Jones should be able to do an AB test too. It's the same thing and he shouldn't need my consent. Or you could resolve the inconsistency in the other direction, of course, and say, um, you know, yes, he needs my, my consent for an AB condition, but you know what? He really should be telling me when I walk in that, guess what? My colleagues in, in the, the exam room next door, they, they, you know, they like drug B, and those patients next door are getting drug B. I'm not sure how, I don't think that's realistic. I don't think it's going to happen, uh, knowing what I know about medical care and the amount of time that doctors spend with patients and so forth and so on. Um, but that, to me, that's a logical, logically consistent response. So consent-wise, you could level up or level down. Correct. But what we found was that, you know, some, some significant percentage of, of people, again, not a majority, but some significant fraction of people who objected to the AB experiments cited the lack of consent as their reason, not surprisingly. And like two guys out of like hundreds that we coded said, wait a second, there should be consent in the, in the policy, in the uncontrolled experiments. I should have to consent to that too. Mm. 
Um, so hats off to the two guys who, you know, they <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, that makes sense to me. <laughs> but the huge gulf, um, I think, is is striking. Isn't it the case that normally when we're in a situation where someone is charged with um, making decisions that affect our individual welfare, and, and especially in situations where societally we think our welfare is part of their, you know, taking count of our welfare is part of their obligation. Uh, when we're evaluating whether they've done a good job or whether they've acted appropriately or ethically, doesn't that evaluation, at least at an initial emotional level, usually or maybe always come down to taking account of their reasons? Th- their reasons for what? Th- their their reasons for whatever it is that they're doing, right? Where that where the thing that is being done is the thing which will affect our welfare. C- can you be a little more concrete in the terms of this these conditions that we have in the study, like the clinic or the? Well, what I'm thinking is this: that um, normally when I when I think about you know when I've been given a drug by a doctor, my assumption is that he or she has made a decision that this is the best drug for me, and. I know that that is subject to lots and lots of uncertainty and that other doctors may take a different point of view, but that decision ultimately kind of grounds out in a decision about how it impacts my welfare. And that's usually how I make a decision about whether it's a good doc, right? Now, uh, if I find out later that the reason that the doctor gave me this particular drug was that he or she thought that, um, you know, I'll come, I'll come around less for refills and bother them less because, but it's a lot more expensive. Then I suddenly think, were they really thinking about my, my welfare or were they really just thinking about like making money off of me and right. So how about, how about this? Maybe it's between the two where you say, you said they think it's the best one for you. What if they think it's the best one for you because they think it's the best one for everybody? That, that, that's fine. Like it's not, they don't think it's best to you uniquely, but -hmm. they think it's best for you because this is just the best drug for, for this. My, my medical opinion is that this is the best drug for this malady. So I prescribe it to anyone with that malady. And what I'm thinking is, is generally when we ask whether uh, an agent has behaved ethically within it, our social system, like we take what, you know, Daniel Dennett calls the intentional stance and we think about like, you know, we, we, we model them as decision makers and we evaluate the appropriateness of what they've done based on those, on those reasons. And there's something about like our makeup, which is unprepared for the idea that someone may ha- that, that the reason I got the specific thing I did was random chance, that the person had basically flipped a coin. And yes, intellectually, I can know, well, the reason they flipped a coin is because if they flip a coin in this round of making decisions, they'll have a better idea of what to do in the future because they have my best interest at heart. But that's a matter, I think, of kind of intellectually understanding that, um, that this kind of intermediate for now reason um, to give me the drug A rather than B, which amounted to a coin flip, was in the service of, of kind of this, uh, of, of increasing our knowledge about a thing. But I just wonder if like, I, I can't think of another situation where, you know, in everyday life, I'm prepared to accept someone who is kind of charged with, you know, or has some kind of ethical obligation for me deciding what to do based on random cho- random chance. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense at one level. Someone described the paper as, you know, really interesting findings or difficult to explain phenomenon or something. And, and I agree with that. Like, I'm, we're struggling to try to hone in on what's really going on here. And like one hypothesis is sort of Kantian, like, you know, people don't like to be used as a means of learning, even if there are also being used as an end in their, themselves, because the learning is in service of the patient physician relationship and your health goals. They nevertheless don't like 
to be, you know, used for learning, which mm-hmm. is sort of sad and, and depressing. So I'm, I'm kind of on, on that side of things. Uh, another version is people are not comfortable with the idea that experts don't in fact know, which is not exactly what you said, but is I think consistent with that, right? I mean, it's very clear. One of the interesting reasons that we found encoded was what we call the proxy form, um, a proxy form of the illusion of knowledge. And the illusion of knowledge is just this belief that you or someone else that really that you know more than you really do about something. So in classic experiments, if you say, do you know how a bicycle works? You know, a lot of most people will say, of course, I know how a bicycle works. What am I an idiot? Mm-hmm. And he's great. Here's a piece of paper and a, and a pencil. Please, please write, please draw you know, a mechanically accurate bicycle. And like most people can't do it. And I would totally raise my hand. I am not, I could not do it either. (laughs) Um, Like I totally could not do it. Um, And the proxy version of the illusion of knowledge is where you think that someone else, some expert, whether it's the doctor or the FDA or some other expert either already does or should know what works. And so that, you know, we, we got a lot a lot of that. Um, and therefore, you know, it's hard to see the purpose of an AB test or any other research method or learning activity. If you think that someone either does or already should know what works best. Or or it's like skepticism that like you, the expert, how could you really be an equipoise? You must have a hunch here. Right. And, and if you're kind of a fiduciary for me, like, you know, like what would you give to your own family? Like, I can't believe that you would like randomize the drug among your own family members. Like you have a hunch whether A or B is better. You must have a hunch. Yeah, but so to me, that's what makes the walk-in clinic experiment so powerful and puzzling. Because I, I could, I think what you're saying speaks would speak to a vignette where you know you choose your own doctor and your doctor prescribes. I mean, the, the ideal would be he prescribes drug A just for you because of some theory of precision medicine magic. That's not a thing, um, <laughs> but more realistic, right? But more realistically, he or she prescribes drug A for all of his or her things, and you're just like, yeah, but my my doctor. I don't care if other people disagree with my doctor. My doctor is the best. My doctor knows what's going on, and that that's definitely a phenomenon. Um, in the vignette that we purposely made it the case that different doctors unnamed, we didn't say like the ones with Harvard medical degrees give everyone, you know, um, drug a or the ones that you choose. It's the one that you're randomly assigned gives everybody a, or another one that you're randomly assigned gives everyone B and people were fine with that. And, and it's funny because you can, you can easily imagine the vignette having said, uh, and you know, and this doc, it, the doctor gives a to everyone who uh, comes to the clinic. Um, indeed, uh, the doctor prescribes a to members of his own family. Yeah. And people would have read that and thought nothing of it. Right? I can imagine another vignette, which says that Dr. A, uh, doctor, doctor A or doctor whatever gives drug A to everybody because he or she read that A had a slightly better effect um, in a journal reporting a randomized control experiment, and they'd say, "Well, absolutely, the doctor has an obligation to give A because of that knowledge, right?" Like they, they would they would attribute the obligation to what was learned right. in a random. Because I want to, yeah. so I want to, I, I think you're right about that, and I want to, so I want to, th- your thing about reasons. Yeah. What's what I think is um, really interesting, um, and on the one hand, right, um, the coin flip 
uh, and you see this in the in the literature about like w- why would it be wrong to learn? Wh- why would we think a judge had done something wrong if we learned a judge decided the winner by a coin flip? Uh, it's it's not a reason. It's the very absence of a reason. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and you'll see people say stuff like that in that literature. Um, so so the the random thing. I get why that feels like it's the absence of a reason. But what's interesting, I think, is that at time sub zero which is figuring out which options are legitimately among the options in which you could use an A-B trial, there is very much the use of reasons. Right? Yes. So, so letting yeah. A be one of the things and allowing B to be one of the things does take the application of the well, domain why, appropriate reason. Yeah. And, and that's happening in the description of the study. But that's why in the, in the, in the judge case... Like it's there. In the judge case, flipping a coin uh, is... Um, uh, is, is destructive of the obligation to participate in a reasoned discourse, right? Because that's how we, we do the thing, right? Right. And in the, the but the flipping the coin with, between the drugs has a larger kind of epistemic purpose behind it, right? And it's the failure to perceive that, right? And the immediate emotional attachment to the, to, you know, the, the possibly. I'm making a slightly different point. Yeah. It is not only, I agree with you that there is that larger epistemic purpose of doing the randomization, but, but, Putting that entirely to the side, there is the application of domain-specific appropriate reasons in deciding the universe of things on oh, which you're going to conduct a, the test. A and B, right? Correct. Yeah. So, so it seems like that's even present. It's just present at a slightly different moment in time. Michelle, what do you but, think but of wait, the... Let me ask Michelle then to tee that up then. Like, have you thought about experiments where... Uh, there are drugs A, B, C, D, E, and F, and the um, and the hospital or the doctor has concluded that A and B are equally effective and the most effective, and therefore they do an experiment with just those two drugs, showing that there's been some exercise of judgment in the interest of the patient. And uh, I thought about another one, too. Uh, well, why don't you just answer that one? Or Hit me with that again. There's A, B, C, D, yeah, E, so F. I suppose there's, yeah, eight drugs. So the eight. vignette describes that there's more than two available, and uh, then it describes that they cull it down to the two, and then the RCT is done with those two. Would you expect to see something different there? Oh, so, so I thought you said the first time you described this, that they had already decided, they'd already done some sort of RCT and determined that those two were equivalent. Maybe they've just read other... You know, in other words, the state of the evidence is that um, that A and B seem to be equally effective, but there's obviously a zone of uncertainty, right? There's room for further study, but that A and B are superior to all the other drugs in the class. And the vignette reports that, hey, you know, there were used to be 20 drugs that people prescribe, but now, you know, after discussions around the, um, you know, at grand rounds and everything, and it's down to A and B. And so they've proposed to do this to determine, you know, so would that present a different I know it presents a different set of facts in the vignette. I'm wondering what you yeah. would expect to find. Help me understand what you what you think is is the important difference. So is the idea that this is this goes some way to teaching the respondent, the survey respondent? Yeah. Well, my other question, yeah, my other question was going to be, you know, another kind of priming would be, um, a, and and you might see something different here than you do, even though you you know you test for like scientific knowledge and, and, and other kind of proxies for people who otherwise you would expect to be supportive of experimentation. Um, but if in the vignette you talked about, you know, why uh, AB experiments are, are important, would you see something different? And this is another way of doing that. Um, but, but it does it by instead saying, Hey, here, there really was an exercise by the docs of expert judgment in the best interests of the patients. But now we've come down to something we really aren't sure about. And they propose to use this method to become more sure about that. 
Yeah. So we have thought a lot um, about what we have sort of internally as a study team called like teaching vignettes or teaching conditions where we, in a way that's, I mean, so it's a way of sort of debiasing people or, or hopefully making the effect go away if they just understood the reason better why the agent was doing the AB test, then maybe it would all be okay, right? Um, we took, we dipped a, a pinky toe into that by, in our early experiments, running two AB conditions, um, which are presented in the paper. So the first we called AB short, and we simply said, you know, the agent decides to run this experiment by randomly assigning patients to A or B. In AB, what we called AB learn, and the learning was supposed to be on the part of our of our our participants, not the vignette participants. We said, you know, we added to the end of it just a simple sentence that said, after a year, the doctor will figure out, or whoever will figure out, you know, which one is better, and we'll offer that to everybody. So that was just to sort of make it crystal clear that there was this really good intention, and here was the purpose. And the, the fairly strong implication is that ex ante, the agent doesn't know whether A or B is better. And what happened is we saw absolutely no statistically significant difference between those two conditions. And so we eventually dropped AB short. And for the, the rest of the experiments, we just ran AB learn. Now, all that said, we could lay it on thicker for sure. And, you know, we could, we could be, um, very explicit about, for example, we could teach them about unwarranted variation in medical practice. We could teach them that, you know, the fact that Dr. Jones gives all of his patients A may not be because he's smarter than the other doctors or because he knows more. It may just be essentially random. Um, so yeah, we, we definitely plan on um, running a lot more additional experiments, uh, including ones that would really try to teach um the survey respondents why this is happening and see whether that makes a difference or not. Uh, no. here, let me give an example that maybe to stay on the same topic. Uh, let me just take a sommelier, right? In a restaurant and suppose that there are 20 wines and there's a particular dish and the sommelier doesn't really know what the best wine is for this dish, but knows that maybe two out of the 20 are contenders. Right. And so, you know, they come to your table and, you know, here she is like, I, you know, we have all these wines. I really think it's either this one or this one, which are the best one or may that that's just one option. Another option is that they recommend, you know, wine A to some and wine B to others. And over time they learn which is better and then they make change the recommendations. And we'd say that that sounds like a sommelier kind of doing his or her job in a way. Right. I mean, they're kind of they've whittled it down. They've exercised some expert judgment on behalf of the of, of the restaurant goers. Yeah. But if there were only two wines to begin with and yeah. the sommelier were, was basically just kind of showing up and giving randomly one wine to one group and one wine to the other because he or she honestly did not know which went better. And then at the end of the time, uh, uh, whatever the period is, said, I'm just going to get, you know, people seem to like this one wine better than the other. So I'm gonna, we would say maybe they're not a very good sommelier. Like, so do you have to have any expert training? They haven't exercised any kind of sommelier reasons. <laughs> Here, right? Here's what I think is really interesting about that. And and I I didn't think that this uh, alternative was so much about teaching the the yeah. people reading the vignettes mo more about how things work. Right. Rather, is what it makes much more salient if this were the vignette. There was 20 in a, and the sommelier would it'll dip down to two. It makes much more salient that there is a moment before the A-B choice where professional domain-specific judgment is being exercised. 
in other words, not randomness is leading to an outcome, but the exercise of judgment is leading to an outcome. Now, I actually think if what's really happening in your studies is that A-B testing triggers a schema in people's minds where consent is required, then it won't make any difference how much how thick this gets layered on, how many professional judgment moments happen before the A-B test moment arrives. Um, if, if it's A-B testing itself that triggers a schema that requires participant consent, um, th- this wouldn't make any, a damn bit of difference. If, if, however, the theory is people judge as less appropriate something where what's salient is randomness as opposed to what's salient is a moment of professional judgment being exercised, then it might actually make a difference. I mean, the sommelier example makes it feel like, you know, like, wouldn't you be pissed if, like, part, if you had a sommelier charge on your bill and it turns out the person was just doing some, like, counting right in the end? I mean, you would say, yeah, maybe it, like, you could have gotten the, the, the busboy to do that. Yeah, or flipping a coin. I mean, I, I think this is actually quite, quite clever. And, and yeah, I, I get it now. It's not so much about teaching about the process of winnowing down appropriate things. It's about framing this. I mean, I think one one possible way this could this could go is that people say, okay, there's this range of possibilities. There's these 20 drugs or 20 wines, and some of them are really crappy, and some of them are great. And you've already widow, you know, winnowed away all the crappy and the mediocre ones. And now we're just talking about like excellent or super excellent. And so, I mean, that may or may not be accurate, but I could imagine people's mental models of that decision being such that in, in fact, that AB test, I mean, what, so one, one way it could go out is that just as you say, like they have exercised appropriate domain specific responsibility and judgment, and they've done enough of that, that now I'm cool with an AB test. Another way could just be that, I have a lot less aversion to loss or risk or uncertainty or whatever, because you're implying pretty strongly that all of the really bad problematic options are off the table anyway. So this is, you know, perfect and super perfect. And so who really cares? And in that case, with respect to the comment about, you know, um, triggering a a consent schema, which I do think is, is a piece of what's going on here. I suspect, I'm almost, I'm almost certain that there are boundary conditions for this effect. Yeah. We can come up with some sort of A-B test that is benign enough or the underlying relationship is arm's length enough that an A-B test is acceptable. And it could be that if you tell people that you've winnowed away or you imply that you've winnowed away all the bad conditions and so that the loser of the A-B test is only going to be like a teensy tiny like barely significant loser relative to the winner, maybe you don't care anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced based on some other science, actually, that, that when people evaluate whether they've been treated right, you know, whether this is okay, you know, whatever it is, it is all about like um, understanding kind of the other's reasons, you know, when it comes down to being treated by others rather than by the world, right? And, and, and rebuilding those reasons. And I think there is... You know, when, when you are treated based on a coin flip, that there is an initial emotional reaction that that is not fair because it doesn't comply with any kind of group norms that we've that have otherwise internalized in the course of my development, right? And uh, 
And so it takes, there are some it takes, things handed out by, by chance, y- and in those domains, we expect people to learn how to not have to have that reaction. Yeah, but, it's, but usually in I order guess. to be okay with being on the kind of random receiving end of, of someone else's actions, there's an additional kind of cognitive step that has to happen. One, you have to know why random works here, yeah. right? And two, you have to have trust. Right, there's a there's an amount of trust that hey these two options really are the same or even if they're not the same there's some reason why it's okay not to be treated the same right so 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 I think those are two different things like you have to understand the social purpose whatever the society you're looking at is the social purpose I'm making all kinds of hand gestures uh, the social purpose of the randomization and then trusting that um, randomization is actually good for you or, or or that your obligations of solidarity to so, solidarity to the group say that it's okay for you to participate in despite the fact that it may not be the best for you and so you know I think these are kind of uh, so it's not surprising to me that you would get some percentage of people who are presented with situations like these, it would say, wait a minute, that's not fair because that's an, that initial emotional reaction. Like, you know, I, other people treating me randomly is not okay. Because it's not a reason. Because it's not a reason. And, and so you have, but then, you know, if you're primed on this, either by being instructed about the reasons for randomization or having this other, like this other information we've added about the 18 other drugs or the 18 other wines, say, oh, okay. Um, uh, so, so we really are, this is part of a joint social effort to get at the best uh, possible outcome here, right? Um, and I think that, you know, the sommelier example, I think is the more I think about it, like you'd be really pissed if if some if you had someone pretending to be an expert say this is the best wine and t- tell other people, hey, this is the best wine. And it turns, you know, during the during the period of experimentation, it, w- it would be, boy, I'd be, I'd be angry. Wouldn't you be angry, Joe? I forget which condition we're talking about here it's now. It's sommelier I'm... giving you wine A or wine B and basically flipping a coin. <laughs> it, I mm. If they really, if they really thought A or B were equally good, see, here's I, I, one thing I think is that makes it hard to know what people are are thinking and yeah. have come up with uh, some of the explanations and and that Michelle and this research group will will figure out more about. But it just sort of seems like one. I mean, one thing that this the the A B test schema suggests is that maybe to a reader um, is that. The person conducting the test is actually worried that A and B are not equally good or they wouldn't go to the trouble of doing the test. That's the only reason you would do the test. Yeah, the only reason. Well, the only reason is because you were not sure that they are equivalent. Like if, if, you, if well, you were sure that they were equivalent, then you wouldn't do a ran- You would just maybe, maybe you would decide randomly, but not in order to do a test. One might cost less. Yeah, they might be equally effective, but one might be less expensive. They're, I think it, to a reader who, who sees that someone is conducting an A-B test, yeah. they may implicitly, or if you if you said, um, I mean, maybe if the dependent variable were, um, do, does this agent believe these things are equivalent or not? How would mm-hmm. people answer that question? It's right. interesting to wonder about that. Um, I mean, maybe... And, and maybe the people who would view it as less appropriate are those who believe less often that the agent thinks they're equivalent. So it really does seem like there's something at stake in the A-B testing process that, that, that suggests it shouldn't be happening. Or, or alternatively, that makes it more important to get people's consent because there's something, there's a downside to getting one of the two options as opposed to getting the other. Um, yeah, that, that the the schema that's being triggered 
if there is one, if there is a schema and it is being triggered, which are two ifs, um, it seems to me to to be what's what's so difficult and fascinating about this this uh, finding. I'm 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 quiet because I'm thinking about whether consent is the ultimate issue or if it is if it follows from you know there there is this like Kantian angle right. Well, now it connects treated. to the learning. It connects to whether you think you're being used as a means or an end. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I, that that you know it go like getting someone's consent, assuming it's adequately informed, goes a long way toward treating them as as an end and not a means because you you are allowing them to decide whether to assist you in that way. But, yeah, but, you know, participating. When, right. But, you know, that I may end up with the short end of the stick here. And so you're appealing to my sense of solidarity, group solidarity. And maybe with solidarity, usually there should be some kind of consent, or at least in many social domains, when you're asking me to sacrifice. Right. There and it, and it also consent. builds trust. I understand. But it's not clear. I mean, it's not clear that that there's a sacrifice. It's a, a sacrifice has to be compared to some reference point. And ex ante, we just we just don't know whether A or B is better. Yeah, so it might turn out to be that they're equally good, or it might right. turn out to be that one is better than the other slightly, uh, and that I happen to get the one that wasn't the better. Yeah, um, we're just talking but, about but the, I may be yeah. asked at a time when I don't know. I think so. we're just talking about the felt emotional reaction yeah. to start with, right? Because the, the rational reaction is, at least as the vignettes are drawn up and where we are in a true state of equipoise, right, which is maybe a somewhat heroic assumption, um, but, you know, it does happen, um, that, uh, you know, the rational thing would be, yeah, of course, I, I'm indifferent anyway, and so why don't we learn something from from <laughs> this indifference? Um, yeah. but, but that's not how at least a, a minority, but a substantial minority of people react to these situations. And so in, in trying to explain how they react, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to understand, like, where's the source of this quote-unquote irrationality? And it may well be that they feel that, you know, because they're being treated randomly, which is not how they're used to being treated, that they are being made to kind of sacrifice in order for the group to learn. Now, of course, it's not a real sacrifice because if we assume equipoise, they, they're no worse off than they would have been uh, un, under uh, kind of unilateral imposition of policy A or policy B. I get that, but I'm just thinking from kind of the point of view of the person who um, is having this, what I think is an immediate emotional reaction, like what's going on. And to bring it back to what I think has, has sort of shrunken from our view in the conversation, people, if someone just did A or someone just did B, like no one would <laughs> raise an eyebrow. You, you wouldn't even notice that it was happening. Yeah, and the, and the empiricist perspective is that that is actually the unethical behavior. If they know that there's this B out here, which might be better, but they just do A because they've always done it that way or for some other reason, like they're, th- then they've, they've chosen A for a bad reason, right? So, so but you, in order to understand that, you have to understand there's a better way of knowing, right, which is experimentation. And, the, and by choosing not to, so that's, you know, there's this objective point of view about how, an intellectual right. point of view, and then there's this like immediate felt reaction point of view. So are we doomed? <laughs> is all of life and and um and civilization doomed? I'm hoping the answer is no. I mean, I hope not. I <laughs> no, I mean, my you know the ultimate goal of this project because I I suspected that this was a thing. Um, so the first step was to sort of systematically, experimentally observe it, and go, go beyond anecdotes. Um, so we've done that now, but 
um, there's a lot more work to do in identifying boundary conditions and really understanding, trying to hone in on what is going on. And I think probably for different people, there's several things probably going on, but to really better understand that. Um, but then ultimately, the goal is to figure out practical ways that individuals and organizations that want to lead their best data-driven lives, um, whether those are health systems or businesses or you know, governments uh, enacting policies or NGOs trying to rid the world of extreme poverty or whatever it is, um, to figure out the best way of presenting an A-B test and or uh, universal implementation of untested policies that doesn't trigger the AB effect and, and that makes that more pal- palatable um, so that, you know, so that you have decision makers who are more ready to engage in AB testing and, and both for themselves and that they aren't anticipating this AB effect on stakeholders and, and not doing it because of fear of bad publicity or, or pushback or whatever. Are you, are you at all worried, Michelle, about about learning, well, uh, uh, about acquiring knowledge of how to make A-B testing more palatable and how that might be used for bad rather than for good? Um, that, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, and as I said before, and just to be clear so that I can limit the amount of hate mail that I get, <laughs> um, I am not denying that A-B testing can be used for bad. Nudging can be used for bad. All sorts of things can be used for good or bad. Definitely not suggesting that. You know, we, have, we haven't yet discovered any intervention that would be effective in reducing this effect size. So it would sort of depend on the nature of the intervention, whether I thought that there was like some, you know, dual use risk where bad, you know, bad agents could, could use it to get people on board with AB testing and then use AB testing to like optimize profits at the expense of end users or whatever. I mean, isn't the, the, the intervention that, that, um, makes AB testing more palatable, it seems to me is, is obvious and was obvious well in advance of, of your work, which is to conceal it. <laughs> right. Is, is to just not telling. Well, that doesn't make it palatable. It makes it right. right. Yeah. But but if the worry would be someone on savory doing A B testing in a way that that you know produced a thing that was a benefit to them whether or not it helped anybody else, they'll just lie about it. I I loved Michelle's earlier at, at the very beginning of the conversation. She had this um, this uh, Marxist sounding phrase about Facebook controlling the means of randomization, <laughs> and, and all I could think of is like the the users of the world should control the, the means of randomization. <laughs> um. Well, no, I, I mean, so I think Joe is right. I mean, nothing, you know, look, I'm happy with my little PNAS favorite. Nothing I do is going to, I don't think, is likely to create a, a scenario where people who aren't, aren't all, who don't already have the power, first of all, all these people already have the power to, imp- to implement whatever it is they want to do to you, completely untested, which is just an uncontrolled experiment. And it treats you totally, potentially totally as a mere means to their end. So all the things that you're worried about untested practice that practice has the potential to do that anyway. And as Joe says, you can do AB testing. People do do AB testing with just without telling people about it. Um, I, I imagine where I thought you were going is when you said like the, the obvious or Christian, I guess, you know, the obvious intervention here is, is what I thought you were going to say. Is that that was Joe. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought you were going to say the, the obvious intervention is explaining 
is, is, is altering people's baseline beliefs that experts already know what they're doing. The fact that you are the highest paid person in the room, the fact that you are a CEO may means a lot of things about you. It doesn't mean that you already know what works. It doesn't mean that you know that your great idea is going to work, is going to have the effects that you think it's going to have. And so if we could sort of de-bias and disabuse people of that baseline belief, that might make it more palatable for them to, you know, it might make A-B testing more palatable. Um, but it's only going to be palatable in if it's in the, the service of ends, whether that's safer, better quality, lower cost healthcare, whatever the end is, that those people endorse. And so if you're using that type of communication intervention to, to um, increase the palatability of A-B testing, but then you, in fact, A-B test for some completely other end, I guess I'm not sure what to say, except that you're just lying, right? <laughs> it reminds me of the, in, in, of kind of the best kind of privacy is um, is for you to kind of control your information and 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 not have it out there, right? Um, the the maybe a, a distant second best is obfuscation and obscurity, right? Where it's out there, but like it would be hard for people to get or hard to find. And you know, there are a bunch of different examples of this um, where you have a kind of security or privacy as a result of obscurity or obfuscation. Um, and, and this seems kind of like that because it seems to me there are domains where we just don't want people to get better at something. Like we don't want, I, we don't want Facebook necessarily, or at least I don't to get better at making an addictive product. Um, we kind of want them at least along that dimension to the extent that the extent somebody would want to create a social network, which was, was all about maximizing, um, engagement, um, and the numbers of engagement per, per day or something, num- numbers of engagements per day or something like that. I actually don't want them to get better at that, which means that I don't want them to use the best tool for figuring out how to get better at that, which, you know, may be experimentation. So it'd be great if they didn't do that. And um, so I'm just thinking that, that in a way, kind of the one, one reason to resist A-B experimentation is you actually don't want the people to get better at it. And in all the examples that you give, like we do want them to get better at it. We want them to get better at at the procedures performed in the hospital with the poster and the badge. We want them to get better at at, at giving drugs, whether it's A or B. We want the sommelier to get better at at giving a wine, right? So, so in most of those cases, like the whole um, uh, kind of dispute arises, or the the whole kind of controversy or discomfort arises because we want to arrive at the best possible arrangement, and we know the best tool for doing that, given our the epistemic gap. Um, but then there are these situations like, you know, Facebook affecting our moods, uh, where like, I don't want them to, I, I really don't even want them to know how to do that. Um, cause I'm, I, I, cause I don't trust what they'll do with that, with that capability. And I get the argument that like, you know, they're going to do it blindly anyway. Maybe they maybe their algorithm happens to be one, which is like maximizing sadness. And if only they knew they would make people happier, maybe, but like the chances are right that they are, they don't have an algorithm that is optimized for, for doing one or the other. Um, and maybe that's better. You're looking quizzical, Joe. Well, it's interesting because it connects to well, having listened to our prior conversation today. Um, it's funny how we're, um, getting to a, a moment or, or a, an issue that came up then as well oh. that, that, um, did I say the same thing? No, not at all. No. Um, <laughs> but, but it, it's connected though. It touches okay. the, um, issue that, that, um, like it seems like a a reason that you a person might be more or less concerned 
about the scenario you just described would have to do with the feasibility and the and the actual existence of other people offering you alternatives, which in Facebook's case seems increasingly like very much not the case, right? So, so what they do is so much more fateful precisely because they don't have very many meaningful competitors, right? Um, And, you know, the market mechanism and, you know, insert Adam Smith joke here, right? The market mechanism, when it really exists and operates, when there are, when there is a competitive marketplace of many people offering you many versions of a, a particular kind of thing, um, then the choice any one of them makes is, is less fateful, if only because people will have real choices to make and, and people will get to satisfy whatever preference they have for that thing that whatever variation they like of that thing better, right? And if it turns out that a lot of people like one over the other, things will just shake out that way, right? More of them will get to get it, get to buy it than than what you're saying is the market is a big A B experiment. Well I do wonder whether or not, Michelle, if you what you think about whether if you had a vignette that said, you know, there's these two options, A and B, and, you know, um uh Jane thinks A is really great and Joan thinks A is really is a excuse me Joan thinks B is really great and so you know Jane decided to do A and Joan decided to do B and a year from now we'll be able to see which one of them had more success with customers like do you think people what, would, what think, would the question be well like do you, and so is that an is it appropriate that they acted that way or not what do you think most people would would think conditional on the context being, you know, as, as you put it, I mean, I think they would probably think it was fine. Um, sadly, it's not, I mean, it's not a scientific experiment, of course. Um, so self-selection into A and B is, does not provide the same kind of knowledge that random assignment to A and B does, but yeah, probably, probably people would think, I, I mean, yeah, contingent on, the belief that it's okay for Jane and Sally or whoever the other person was to, to, to make their own choice. Sure. And maybe a, a slightly different way to say it would be like if, uh, if Joan lives in a community with one community hospital, which decides on policy a, after having many discussions about it and determining it's best for their patients. And Jane lives in a community with community hospital B, and maybe that's the only one there. And they decide on, on policy B, have I used A and B twice? Now? I mean, this is this is a lot like the clinic example, though, where you're walking in because one doc right. thinks drug A is better and one doc thinks drugs B is better. But where the social, but but where we think, it, but it's kind of like a marketplace of ideas kind of thing. Like so, um, so we think it's okay. You can imagine people thinking it's okay because each hospital determined based on the state of the evidence what it thought was in the best interest of patients, and it didn't. You know, if if you think like things are never really in equipoise, you know, then they had a hunch one way and someone else had a hunch a different way. And maybe the way this all shakes out, and maybe the way that we learn that what we thought you know was true was not true, is that a lot of different people try a lot of different things, and so we get some kind of studies about what they did in community a and community b and so we kind of aggregate information that way now that's not as nearly as good a way of, of doing medical studies right to compare because there's so many confounding variables but right you can imagine people having an initial emotional reaction hey that's a that's a better way to figure out which is better let's let you know it's kind of the laboratory of the instead of laboratory of the states in the federalism it's kind of laboratory of the community hospitals in different communities or something <laughs> like that right 
so Michelle is this is the self-selection is that, well I was going to say is that ridiculous Michelle uh no I mean to the extent to the extent I followed you um, <laughs> always I, an I, if no <laughs> um well I think it is interesting to manipulate to use a loaded term but I'm using it in the scientific sense not in the creepy sense um to manipulate who would be making the decision so we've thought about running you know running um experiments where in the AB condition, like the patient would flip the coin and would mm-hmm. that have, you know, would that make any difference? Would that feel, would that have them feel like they're more in control rather than that would also involve consent necessarily. Um, so it'd be interesting. I mean, in your example, you've got Jane and Sally, you know, making, making the choices, um, I guess for themselves, or maybe I didn't follow the, the vignette wasn't sure that they were making it for them for themselves or for others. We aren't being very careful here. So. <laughs> <laughs> and and in a way, I mean it's funny because you just wind up reproducing some of the same quandaries, right? Yeah. You could yeah. say, oh well, you know, Jane lives here, Sally lives there, um, and and you know, people can vote with their feet. I mean, implicitly, you're you're allow you're saying there's a level of choice because they live where they live. But of course we know that that people don't have unfettered choice about where they wind up living. So so the degree to which people are choosing or not choosing uh, consenting or not consenting is itself so highly contestable it's a, and sensitive yeah. to pushing around with with very small factual changes i imagine and these small factual changes are meant to get it like how much of it is about like knowing that the person who's treating you has made a decision which is in your interest like that they have tried you know that they've made a personal decision which is in, and how much is about like having some agency over it like yeah there's so there's if, if there's a different community doing a different thing i could conceivably go there right and so you can kind of manipulate the amount of the ta- of the kind of the personal tax that one has in in kind of exercising that agency. I guess I'm just more in Michelle. What is there? Are there studies or data about how people th- think about what is or isn't fair? If anything is or isn't fair about about you know A/B testing or you know randomized control trials, however whatever label you want to put on it, um, as against sim- simply having someone decide to pick an option. Um, like if you presented people with a description that says, you know, the the agent is going to, uh, the, they could choose A or they could choose B. Um, they think about it and, and their hunch professionally is that A is better. Uh, but of course, they could have done a trial where they tested it against B properly. Um, is that appropriate or not? Uh, that they just chose A? Yeah. So it's- I think the short answer is, I certainly don't know of any literature looking at that. I think that's part of, you know, the contribution of our paper is we are, it's not just about what do people think about RCTs. To some extent, it was known that, you know, people have some aversion to being treated like, quote, a guinea pig or a lab rat or whatever. It's the juxtaposition of their attitudes towards being in an A-B test and their attitudes towards being in an uncontrolled experiment and being unilaterally subjected to or B, right? So that that's kind of the, oh, huh. Um, so I sure hope that no one else did, you know, did that before us. Do you Otherwise, think that would be worth doing? Do you, them, I guess. Do, do, um, would, it, would that be worth doing? Would, would no, no, it, no, absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, we're definitely going to do within subjects soon. Um, and we're, you know, we have to figure out the details of how do we, how do we explain why we're asking them all these things. But yeah, I mean, one debiasing strategy or intervention could simply be like when you, when you proffer an AB test could be, remember the CEO or the hospital director 
could just choose to give everybody A or could just choose to give everybody B. You know, he's, he's, he wants to do an AB test for reasons, you know, because learning, um, <laughs> right. whatever, you know, yada, 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 you can fill in the rest, but like simply reminding them, making it very explicit, um, that, that would be a medium, a step in between within subjects and between subjects. Um, and yes, we've, we've definitely thought that that might be an effective intervention all by itself. And of course it would be interesting to do it in the policy conditions too, he wants to, you know, he's, he thought, so he's thought of this idea and he's, he's decided to just give it, give A to everybody. Of course, you know, there is this other idea and he could give B to everybody, or you could try to figure out which one's better, but he's really going to just give A to everybody and see if that affects people, you know, the appropriateness ratings. And, and the contrast there, um, as opposed to, I guess, a different set of, of comparisons where you have a vignette that has A-B testing and you say the person engaged in the A-B testing um, affirmatively concealed it. Um, or And the other condition is, you know, explicitly sought and received consent from all the participants, right? So that, because at some point, bearing down on the, on the role consent does or doesn't play here, I think would be critically important. Yes, we, we have a whole suite of experiments where we're going to, you know, to just use the same vignettes, but we're going to explicitly say that consent is present in all the conditions. A suite where we say, can explicitly say consent will not be obtained in all the conditions. And then, because this is an important policy um, lever, if you will, we're going to look at notice, which is in between. Um, there has been some research when people have looked at you know, would you participate in a pragmatic trial or a comparative effectiveness trial of two different drugs? There has been some some survey research like that, not comparing it to attitudes towards universal implementation. Um, and there's been some suggestion that at least some sizable percentage of people would be just as happy to just be told as opposed to be asked. Um, and it's, of course, a lot easier to provide notice than require consent for lots of reasons, practical reasons, scientific reasons. Um, so that's a really important policy question to answer. So we're, we're again, soon going to do within subjects, soon going to do the consent notice, no consent thing. The other thing that we're going to do is, you know, we're going to, again, some previous research has shown that if you give somebody like the same description of an activity called a protocol or whatever, if you call it an experiment or research or a study, people will rate the riskiness of the same thing differently, depending on what word you use. Um, and which is fairly irrational, right? So M more risky if it's called an experiment. Yeah, that's the E word. Yes. <laughs> and so, yes. And so would you we, like to be a human so, subject today? You will, you will notice. I mean, I know, I know researchers who, when they submit their IRB applications pointedly avoid the E word and they're like, you know, we propose a study in which, you know, and they do it on purpose. Um, you know, they, they learn the hard way. Um, so we're going to run a suite, you know, of vignettes where we uh, strip the, um, so we, in, in, in the ones that we reported in PNAS, in the policy conditions, we don't describe that as an uncontrolled experiment. He's going to, he's going to experiment on patients by putting posters everywhere and assigning everyone <laughs> to posters. We don't say that, but we could, because that's, that's true, right? It is just an uncontrolled experiment. Um, life is just... Uh, you know, the A condition of an AB test that was never run. That's what, that's what you are living right now. <laughs> it's true. And so I, we, well, you might be living the A or the B. I'm living the F. Okay. <laughs> the F test for sure. 
Or the Z um, test. So, so there's an asymmetry in language in the vignettes that we currently run where there's no scary experimental random assignment test subject language in the policy conditions, but there is in the AB condition. So just in case that mm. is playing a part in it, we can add scary language to the policy conditions by describing them as uncontrolled experiments. Um, and <laughs> of course, we can do what a lot of researchers do when they go to their IRB and drain their AB test policies of the scary language and call it something kinder and friendlier. Um, and so we will see, you know, what happens then. Mm. What do what do public health like before you did these studies, when when people like, what was a sort of public health community norm or or health policy community norm about? Like, gosh, A/B tests uh, clearly that's better. Like people will like it better, and it's got to be better. Was that what people were thinking, or I just wondering what the baseline was before this kind of work took place? Before the Facebook kerfuffle happened before like if you just stopped a public health or a health policy person on the sidewalk and said you know what do you what this whole ab thing is that good or bad like everyone has said oh it's great right um i mean there are you know as always internecine squabbles over um rcts and in particular there are these debates which i confess really annoy me about what about so-called real-world evidence, capital R, capital W, capital E, um, which is meant to be sort of big data analysis from things like patient records, claims data, you know, real-world data. To me, that well, anyway, my point is that you will find some people who say that RCTs are overrated. Um, you will certainly find people who say that RCTs lack external validity. That is, they can't really tell you what's about the effects of an intervention in the real world. That's true if you're doing a highly contrived phase one, phase two, phase three sort of RCT where you're using patients without comorbidities and um, you're using treatment naive patients and you're, you're using investigators who are adhering to a strict protocol um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the real world, patients have lots of comorbidities and they aren't always compliant and physicians aren't always compliant and so forth and so on. Um, but that's the beauty of pragmatic trials, um, which is everything that we're talking about in our paper are all pragmatic trials. So in my view, pragmatic trials marry the best of RCTs, which is internal validity, with the best of real world evidence, which is external validity. Um, so I sort of think it's largely a false debate, but there are people who mm. argue about that for a living and they'll tell me that I'm wrong and they can send the hate mail to the same place that the privacy <laughs> scholars who hate me can also send the hate mail to that place too and all the Facebook haters. Um, well, so I'm, I, I'm likely to do nothing so much as stumble into a false debate. So I'm, I apologize for doing that. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I don't know if it's a false debate. I mean, you know, RCTs can't tell you everything. They're not perfect. Um, there's increasing numbers of there's basket trials and there's cluster rent and there's all kinds of different variations of RCTs. But I suspect, I mean, at a very high level, scientists, including those in the public health community, I'm, I'm not sure if there was something particular about that community you had in mind, um, but you will see them generally say, and I think that's why you see so much of science Twitter tweeting the paper and with like hashtag crying emoji and, you know, <laughs> hashtag we're screwed emoji and, and think or whatever and things like that because in general those people recognize you know the the importance of of evidence-based 
practice and policy. And the generally speaking, the best thing you can do is an RCT. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so pessimistic, though. I think um, uh, the, the results are fascinating and they provide a way of kind of think, you know, first of all, they provide like real concrete support that uh, for the proposition that this is an issue that people react, do in fact react this way um, systematically. But as you say, it's a, it's a minority of people and it's uh, and we don't yet know under what conditions they will have this reaction. You know, it seems to be a widespread set of circumstances. Um, but, you know, there may be kind of reticulation um, of the whole scheme that might reveal some complexities. And it sounds like you guys are going to do some of those experiments. Oh, we're going to be busy for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. This has been um, a really interesting. I mean, it, it's funny that, you know, four years ago we had the conversation. Today we're having the conversation about about the empirical work you've done. And it just seems like for for what seems on the surface like a, it would be a simple matter, it turns out to be so, so complex. Yeah. That it's very enjoyable to have someone like you who's who's thought about it and done these experiments about it to kind of talk us through and work through some of the some of that complexity well i'm gonna do some rss magic and half of our audience is going to get this episode and half (laughs) is going to get a different episode which is totally fair and then we're just going to measure response rates and and we're going to probably show up at various people's houses and take (laughs) take you know take take pulses and all kinds of other things to measure you know all kinds of reactions and and we'll let you know the results michelle Excellent. We'll have me back in another four years and maybe I'll have some answers to some of these puzzles and some, <laughs> some, interve- some interventions to make us all feel better about the future of evidence-based practice and policy. So I got a jolt of optimism when Michelle said, have, us ba- have me back in four years. I'm yeah. Like, oh, maybe, maybe we'll, you know, maybe there'll still be a podcast in four years. Maybe. And <laughs> hey, chin up science, Twitter. Chin <laughs> up. <laughs> thanks again. Uh, thanks so much. All right. Thanks guys. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye.